Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And welcome to another special edition of Willy Willy Harry Stee, my personal history of the British monarchy. It's another sidebar episode where I fill in some of the facts and the details around the monarchs that I'm talking about, rather than trying to cram it all into one of the episodes. And we have just ploughed our way through the Wars of the Roses. I think I've made sense of it, although I do have to keep going back and checking every single fact when I record another episode because the details are so complicated. Right, OK, and finally, finally the Tudors have arrived on the scene. We saw how, at the end of Richard III's reign, he was defeated by Henry Tudor at the Battle of Bosworth Field. Killed. And Henry took his throne. But rather than just launch straight into Henry in the next episode, I thought it would be really useful to find out more about the Tudors. Who they were, where they came from and how they ended up taking over the throne of England. And I thought, who better than the fantastic Tracy Borman to join us? Tracy, who's written many, many books on the Tudors, including her latest, which was out in May 2023, called Anne Boleyn and Elizabeth I the mother and daughter who changed history. But Tracy has also beaten me to it. She's published a history of the monarchy and and, and it's called Crown and Scepter, isn't it, Tracy? It is, that's right. It's a new history of the British monarchy. When it was published, it was William the Conqueror to Elizabeth II. And then I very quickly had to go back (laughs) and do a new edition uh, last year uh, after the 8th of September. And it now goes all the way up to Charles III. Yes, well, it's been very easy for for historians of the monarchy because Elizabeth was there for so long, you didn't have to keep changing things. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Now, I have to confess, Tracy, that I haven't read it yet. You know what it's like when, when someone does something similar to something that you're working on? 
you don't want to read it in case, well, I suppose in case you, you start nicking things without realising it. Or perhaps even worse, you get discouraged and disheartened. I don't want to start reading it and think, oh God, why am I even trying to do this when Tracy's done it so much better? But I fully intend to to properly read it when I'm finished and think, oh, that's what really happened. Was it? <laughs> <laughs> you can tell me all the things you disagree with. Then. Oh, great, great, because that's what I've been finding doing these podcasts is the is is that you know we all think well history is history and the historians all agree, but 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 you don't, do you? We don't. We love to disagree. We like a heated debate amongst the history <laughs> community. <laughs> and I mean, I suppose your specialist area has been the Tudors but you've written on on other areas and of course your monarchy is 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 more general would you describe yourself as a Tudor historian now or yeah. or more of a generalist I would say Tudor historian first and foremost that's where my love of history began particularly with Elizabeth the first and um, I've stayed with them from my A-level days uh, and and an unmentionable number of years later I still keep coming back to the Tudors and you're not fed up with how much stuff there is about the Tudors. Does anything on TV about a monarch? It's going to be Henry or Elizabeth. Oh, no. <laughs> no. I could never get bored with the Tudors. They're the gift that keeps on giving and they're <laughs> always ripe for reinterpretation. There's the, I don't know if you've seen the amazing musical Six about the the wives of uh, Henry VIII. And it's, it's, they, that has certainly uh, got tongues wagging and, and made us think again about what they're really like. So, yeah, there's, there's always going to be material for the likes of me uh, to trawl over and, and write about and talk about. So, yeah, I, the Tudors are my bread and butter. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and as I said in my introduction, you've written many historical books on the Tudors, you're a Sunday Times best-selling author. You've also written historical fiction, which I hope we can touch on later. And you also have a posh job as chief curator of historic royal palaces. Yes. Is that alongside Lucy Worsley? It is. We are uh, job sharing uh, that role. <laughs> um, it, we ne we're never seen in the same room at the same time. It's like a, a solar eclipse. <laughs> it's very rare. We see each other about once a year at the Christmas party. Uh, right. But otherwise, we tend to be in different palaces at different times. But it's yeah, it's a very, very amazing job. A very privileged. I get to go through the doors that say private on them, mm. which is always the biggest thrill. And I mean, and is this is there still a lot of potentially undiscovered stuff in these houses to, for you to sort of dig into and and find new wrinkles on the story? That's a great phrase. I'm going to borrow that one, <laughs> Charlie. Thank you. Um, I think we. We probably found as much as there is to find in terms of the collections. I can't say that there are any unexplored attics with potential treasures hiding oh, there. Bodies but, buried under the floor. Damn it. Although, <laughs> you know, I want to steer well clear of the princes in the tower. But, you know, that's the oh, yes. sort of thing where their skeletons were discovered during demolition works at the Tower of London, which mm. is our most visited palace. Um, but I guess it's more a case of what we are understanding more about the palaces all the time. So, for example, the most asked question at Hampton Court mm. is, where is Henry VIII's bedroom? And we used to tell visitors it no longer exists. It was pulled down. But then a very clever curator a number of years ago actually reread the building accounts and realised it was there hidden in plain sight. It had just been mislabeled in the files. And so we do still have Henry VIII's bedroom. Uh, it was then turned into our IT department office. Um, <laughs> but I'd very much like to open it up uh, to the public in the future. That's one thing Henry could never have predicted. 
I know. That is how the mighty have fallen. <laughs> bedroom's going to be home to the IT department. <laughs> but, well, right. well, so, I mean, kind of everybody, everybody knows Henry VIII, I think. Um, and they all know about him and his six wives. But I don't think everybody knows where the Tudors came from and how it all started. So I'm just going to fill in a bit of backstory. Tracy, please feel free to jump in if you think I'm talking bollocks. Oh, excellent. <laughs> now, it's quite tricky actually tracing the Tudors, isn't it? Because Tudor seems to have originally been a first name. The Welsh didn't have the same naming system as the English. We see this word ap in so many Welsh names and it means son of. So um, Rhys Ap Daffid translates as Rhys, son of David. I, mean, I guess it's the same as the Icelandic system where you have surnames like Magnusson if you're a male, son of Magnus, and Magnus Dottir if you're a female. So anyway, so, so we have Tudor as a Christian name, which leads to a son being called Ap Tudor, and this all means that deciding exactly where the official Tudor family starts is quite tricky. There was a family known as the Tudors of Penminith on the Isle of Anglesey in Wales. And they seem to have been a fairly powerful family in the 13th and 14th centuries. And they were key in trying to unite Wales into a single kingdom as it would be more powerful and could more easily stand up to the English. Because the setup in Wales at this time was uh, it was more like Anglo-Saxon England, with all these competing mini kingdoms or principalities. Wales didn't get the same unifying stamp of bureaucracy that England had got, first from the Romans and later on from Alfred the Great. And the Welsh, well, they never really did manage to unite into a single powerful kingdom. So anyway, eventually the family starts to have dealings with the English and the English monarchy. Some members of the family are found in the personal retinue of King Richard II, but it seems that after Richard was dethroned by Henry Bolingbroke, Henry IV, they switched their allegiance to the rebel Owen Glendower, who we know from Shakespeare's Henry IV play, and we have this Welsh uprising against the English. Now, Glendower was pretty much defeated by Henry VI, and a lot of his lands and the lands of his supporters were taken by the English king. So this would have knocked back the Tudors and, and possibly forced some of them to leave Wales and find fame and fortune in England. And eventually one of them, a guy called Owen or Owain Tudor, becomes... Well, uh, Tracy, he turns up as a servant in Henry V's household, doesn't he? Yes. And I guess because nobody knew how important the Tudor family was going to be, there are hardly any records concerning Owen Tudor at this stage. And most of the stories that have grown up about him are probably apocryphal. That he fought at Agincourt, that his father was a fugitive murderer, that he was a squire of Henry V, and so on. But one amazing thing we do know for certain is that after Henry V died of dysentery, his widow, Catherine of Valois, daughter of the mad French King Charles, had an affair with and then married Owen Tudor. Uh, I mean, this is quite extraordinary, isn't it, Tracy? I mean, this sort of thing is simply not done by a medieval queen. Owen must have been quite a lad. Well, you know, he certainly married above his station, marrying the Dowager Queen. It caused a scandal that Catherine of Valois had had so stooped 
to marry um, and undoubtedly for love. I think there was a, a strong attraction mm. there. But it it was certainly something that her son, the king, Henry VI, didn't particularly approve of. Um, and, I mean, uh, yeah, it created a scandal. And, I mean, and there are these, these stories about him. I don't know how apocryphal they are, but they are fun. The, that um, that Catherine had spotted him swimming in the in the river or the moat outside the palace um, in the nude, and she'd been attracted to his uh, his strong physique. And then there's the other story that he was he was dancing while pissed and and fell over and fell into the queen's lap. Is there any truth in them? Come on, give well, me something. Never let uh, the truth get in the way of a good story is what I always say. Um, I'm not really sure, I'm afraid, that there is much uh, substance behind either of those. I think what they're right to infer, though, is that there was a strong physical attraction on Catherine's part, because uh, otherwise, why would she do it? She was um, you know, a person of huge status, the, the king's mm. mother, uh, the widow of the much celebrated Henry V, you know, yeah. victor of the Battle of Agincourt. So why just marry a fairly lowly member of the court? So I, I think, yeah, she was she was marrying for love. I mean, we, we, we know so much about the kings at the time. I mean, how much do we know about Catherine? I mean, is, is, does anything survive of her own thoughts or, or, or letters or anything about any of this? We know actually very little, and and that's both disappointing and entirely predictable when it comes to women in this mm. period of history. In fact, for much of the the Middle Ages, they are the the kind of bit parts and um, the the hidden histories, really. And so, yeah. I'm afraid we don't know that much um, about Catherine. I it's, I actually proposed a book about her, so I'm I'm a bit bitter about this because oh. it was re rejected on the basis that there is there just isn't enough material. Um, but I would love to go. But you must have thought there out. was enough to. Well, you to see, I had propose it. I, I, you know, what? I had the title. That's the problem. Like Mother of the <laughs> Tudors, I was going to call it Mother of the Tudors, and let's work backwards from the title. And sadly, there wasn't really. Well, you much. must, you must do, which you have done elsewhere. What historians want to do when they don't have all the facts is do it as fiction. Yes. And I love doing that. Honestly, <laughs> making stuff up is such a joy for a historian when there are those frustrating gaps in the sources. Um, you can use your imagination to fill them. Mm. So I actually love writing fiction. Um, although my fiction is not Tudor, shamefully. It's probably treason, isn't it? I've written about the Stuarts oh. in fiction rather than the Tudors. But yeah, as you say, we, we know enough that it, it seems... Yeah, that it was a marriage for love because it really wasn't something she should have done as no. the widow of, of King Henry V. Um, and they seem to have been pretty happily married. I mean, yes. Owen, Owen was tough enough to weather the storm and the criticism and the, the Twitter yeah. The Twitter backlash. <laughs> exactly. All of that. All the trolls. And uh, yeah, managed to weather that, uh, as did as did Catherine. And they seem to have been um, happily married. You know, they, they had a number of uh, children and uh, Edmund Tudor really being being the key one here. Um, yeah. The father of Henry VII. Yes. Um, and also Jasper Tudor. So Henry VII's uncle, he would be enormously influential. Uh, in the Tudor court, so yes. so yeah, it was it was really this this sort of love match that ultimately led uh, to the the Tudors. So Owen Tudor is married to Catherine of France, King Henry the Sixth's mother, and inevitably he got drawn into the turmoil of the civil war. Owen Tudor did get drawn into the wars of the roses, but he doesn't seem to have really played any 
distinguishing part as such. Um, he's the, the definitely the House of Lancaster was, you know, his side. His uh, stepson was Henry the Sixth, a Lancastrian yeah. king. So of course he knows absolutely which side he's going to be fighting for. The losing side, essentially. I mean, at least at this point. He and his son Jasper are leading an army of Welsh reinforcements into England, but they come up against a Yorkist army at Mortimer's Cross and are soundly beaten by the Yorkist leader, Richard of York's son, Edward of York, Richard having been recently killed at the Battle of Wakefield. And poor old Owen, the handsome servant who married a queen, is captured and beheaded. He is executed. Yeah, so that, that, that I'm afraid, is the sticky end to Owen Tudor. But at and least again, he died fighting for the Lancastrian cause. Yes. Mm. Why, do you prefer the Lancastrians or just that was a No, just, <laughs> just that he sort of redeemed himself a bit because he was quite a scandalous figure, um, the fact that he'd married so far above himself. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he, was, he was a noble kind of fighter to the end. And again, there's a great story which you're going to tell me again that there is no evidence for that just before he was beheaded um he said something like um as he put his head on the block here here sits the head that used to sit in the queen's lap exactly and for once that's not a myth oh that brilliant was actually <laughs> faithfully recorded a reliable source so i'm not going to shut your illusions this time oh. uh, it was one of the best quotes i think the, the the sort of last words i think that was a good one yeah and as i say he did seem to have been a bit of a lad so yes. i'm gonna say hats off to owen tudor yeah i quite like owen tudor who was probably a more interesting person than his grandson henry the seventh yeah, are we allowed to say that yes yes let's say it. although i'm gonna make a pitch for henry the seventh because people dismiss him as as the sort of boring prelude to his more famous son. yes Good old Henry VIII. But, but well, well, let's just hold that thought because I, I've somewhat jumped ahead. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Henry hasn't been born yet in this story. So... Let's go back. Owen Tudor was executed in 1461 after the Battle of Mortimer's Cross. His son Jasper had fought alongside him but escaped. And Owen's other son was called Edmund, Edmund Tudor. And he was the father of Henry Tudor, who goes on to become Henry VII. But at this point, Edmund had already been dead for six years. I mean, it's all a bit murky. But as far as I can tell... Uh, Edmund's base was in Wales, 
where he fell out with a neighbour, Griffith App Nicholas. There's one of your apps. And they went to war with each other. Edmund beat Griffith and took over Carmarthen Castle, making him the lord of a pretty substantial part of Wales. And it seems like that was seen as a threat. The Yorkists didn't like this and sent an army into Wales. And Edmund was captured and imprisoned in Carmarthen Castle, um, where, I don't know, he might have survived. He might have talked his way out of it, but I believe he died of bubonic plague. He did indeed. You might say, is that a preferable death to the sword? I don't know, or or decapitation. I don't know. And the worst things they got up to. Indeed. (laughs) (laughs) But his brother Jasper, Uncle Jasper, um, seemed to have gone on to play quite a big part in what happened after that. He absolutely was. Jasper was the ultimate mover and shaker, a a, real power uh, player of the um, House of Lancaster and very influential over the young Henry Tudor. He was really the the key male influence over his nephew, Mm. a sort of replacement father figure if you like. And and Henry grew up, he he adored Jasper. He was incredibly shaped by him, uh, really. So, and if if you, um, if you believe some of the uh, historical novels that have been written, there was a bit of, (laughs) a bit of frisson between Jasper Tudor and, uh, and Margaret Beaufort, his sister-in-law, but, but who knows? Right. Okay. I can see that, how that would make a good story. (laughs) Indeed. So it it was, was Jasper kind of, um, channeling his dad Owen, quite rakish and dashing. Yeah, very much so. I think, <laughs> yeah, I quite, I, I do warm to Jasper. I think he was a very canny man. He was a you know, brilliant fighter. He was he was very skilled um, on the battlefield. And, but he's, you know, nailed his colours to the, to the mast. He stuck with the House of Lancaster and, mm. and ultimately yeah, triumphed. And he made it through the Wars of the Roses unscathed fighting alongside his nephew Henry at the Battle of Bosworth. He did. He was one of the the, the rare examples of somebody who, despite actually at times backing the wrong horse, he he emerged triumphant. And his nephew was King of England. And as you might imagine, uh, Jasper uh, is is now very much uh, on the sunny side of the street. So to get back to Jasper's brother, Edmund, He'd married just before he was captured and killed in Wales and his wife was pregnant when he died. He never saw his son, the son that was going to go on to rule England. But luckily, the woman he'd married was one tough mother. Actually, I say woman. She was only 12 years old when she married Edmund, wasn't she, Tracy? And, and 13 when she gave birth to Henry. Yes, yes, that's right. Uh, for all that she was raised with a keen awareness of her royal blood, she was still just, you know, a very young woman uh, in a world of men. And so I think mm. she is, like her son, enormously impressive, a real matriarch um, and yeah. not afraid of getting too close to the throne, which I, I wouldn't have gone anywhere near the royal court if I'd been of royal blood, because it was a dangerous place to be, particularly at this time. But it was kind of all she had, really, wasn't it? It was, you know, it, it, it it's a similar sort of story to Margaret of Anjou, where of exactly of just putting everything into that because without that she has nothing and Absolutely. her life is meaningless. Absolutely, you do, it's the age really of these powerful women, even though they bucked the trend um, of society at the time, which was very male dominated. You do get these 
these incredible women, these matriarchs who aren't prepared to just be the passive uh, kind of queen consort um, and just produce heirs. They they want something a bit more and they're very, very effective. Elizabeth of York, another example yeah. of that. And indeed her mother, Elizabeth Woodville. And of course, Margaret is only 13 years older than than Henry's so a very yes. close in age, more like a big sister. Really. Exactly. I was going to say more like siblings, really. And um, I don't know if that's you know, one of the reasons they were they were quite so close, although mm. for much of Henry's life, he didn't actually see his mother. Yes, because once Edward of York took the throne, Henry, as a male heir to the Lancastrian side of the family, was a threat to him. So Henry fled to Brittany and hid out there for 14 years. So the Tudors claim to the throne was frankly quite dodgy, actually. And there were others with better claims to the throne. They are, as you say, of uh, Welsh descent. And their claim to the throne uh, dates all the way back to King Edward III. Now, often in history, you find that monarchs struggle to have a male heir, and that causes lots of problems. But it was the opposite for Edward III. He had too many of them. <laughs> and so their descendants started battling between them You've already covered the Wars of the Roses, so you know all about that. And the Tudors were descended from Edward III's third son, John of Gaunt. But the dodgy part of their claim is that uh, John of Gaunt eventually married Catherine Swinford, uh, his long-standing mistress. Mm. Uh, but the Tudor claim was from when they were just having an affair. So actually, the Tudors originally were illegitimate. And, and therein lay all the problems for them and why they never really felt secure on the throne. So this is the branch of the family known as the Beauforts. And Edmund Tudor marries into it via Margaret Tudor, who we were just talking about. I mean, the Tudors themselves weren't connected to John of Gaunt before that point. No, no, absolutely. So Owen Tudor... So marries Mar Margaret Beaufort and, of course, Margaret Beaufort um, being a descendant of... John of Gaunt. So she's the real powerhouse yes. of the Tudor court, the king's mother, mother-in-law from hell, I think, to uh, Henry VII's wife, Elizabeth of York. Um, <laughs> but she is the one. She is the the one who carries the, the sort of royal line, uh, if you like. Um, and with her, yeah. Yeah, I mean, she's that. like so many of these powerful women from the period yes. of, of unable to to be fully in charge in their own right. Exactly. They put everything into the, to the son to try and get him into a position yes. of power. Yes. So if you really want the kind of family tree sort of detail though on, on, on Margaret before saying a word of her, she uh, was the sole heiress of John Beaufort, who was a grandson of John of Gaunt, but yes. a, an illegitimate grandson. But really, Margaret was incredibly ambitious. She had this, this driving ambition for her only child, uh, a son, um, who uh, she was she bore when she was probably just about 13 years old, which is quite mm. horrifying. Um, there is a theory that that kind of damaged her physically. That's why she had no more children. So really, all her eggs were in one basket. And uh, boy, did she promote her son, Henry. She tirelessly did, because one by one, the Lancastrian claimants, they were of the House of Lancaster. They kind of died off. They were killed off. And really, her son was the last man standing, pretty much. So she championed him 
without hesitation and with enormous energy. So I think, you know, it was thanks to her, really, that, that Henry Tudor came to the throne. And she had an amazing life, didn't she? I mean, before being married to Edmund Tudor when she was 12, she'd already been married to one of the de la Pole family, but he was murdered before the marriage was consummated. So, so she marries Edmund Tudor, who dies of the plague. She marries again to Henry Stafford. That lasted apparently quite happily right through the wars for about 14 years, all the time that her son Henry was hiding out in Brittany. But then Stafford is wounded at the Battle of Barnet and dies soon afterwards. Margaret is widowed for the third time and she's not yet 30. And she marries again, this time to Thomas Stanley. And it's Thomas Stanley and his brother William who hold the balance of power going into the Battle of Bosworth, even though Richard is holding William Stanley's son George hostage to make sure he stays loyal. And, and the brothers hold back, don't they, with a, with a large section of the army. And it's only right at the end that they make their choice and they join the battle on Henry's side. Yes, and it's decisive. Henry wouldn't have won the Battle of Bosworth without mm. the uh, the intervention of the Stanleys, but it it literally could have gone either way because even though you know as you say Thomas Stanley was married to to Henry Tudor's mother, his brother's son was hostage. So what mm. what are you going to do? So that poor son, you know, decides actually I'm going to go with Henry Tudor. But I think they could see that perhaps the the tide of the battle was slightly turning in Henry yeah. Tudor's favour. Uh, but well, they, they must have. They must have done. Yeah, they were very wily. Uh, these two, uh, these two brothers, really, yeah. um, and and incredibly decisive at the end of the day. And they win the day for for Henry to 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 kind of march in and fully into the pages of the history books. They do. They do. So um, really, they're, they're kingmakers. Uh, we know that uh, that label was applied to, to others um, uh, and one in particular. But really, the Stanleys were, were both kingmakers. Um, and uh, as, of course, was Henry Tudor's mother. I think she deserves the most credit in all of this. Yeah, but she must have played a huge part in that. Yeah. And, and, and you know, apparently... You know, another prime suspect in the murder of the princes in the tower uh, because she had to get those boys out of the way for Henry Tudor to take the throne. I personally don't really buy into that theory. I'm doing very badly because I swore not to mention the princes in the tower (laughs) because I always get into trouble. Well, I know the Ricardians like to promote the idea that Henry, one way or another, whether it was through his mother or or whoever, was instrumental in in getting rid of the princes so that he would have a clear path to the throne. But as you say, I I find that a little bit unlikely because he then still had to battle his way past Richard, who was actually on the throne. Exactly. Exactly. It doesn't quite stack up. I don't think that one. But but let's let's steer clear of danger. Well, no, I have come down on that side that Richard was Dick the Bad. Oh, that's Partly a brave because, thing to other, say. Other, because it, it, fits, it fits my rhyme that the podcast is based on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true, actually. Yeah, <laughs> Go with that. <laughs> and, and as we touched on before, my take on Henry, Henry VII, the first of our Harry's twain in the rhyme, was actually a decent chap, a good king and, and good for the country. You know, he was, he, he was very impressive. He managed to stabilise the throne. He wasn't just this kind of sour-faced miser. He liked to spend his money. He spent about £3 million on his own wardrobe in the first two years of his reign. Um, Mm. He kept 
jesters and minstrels. He had tennis coaches to improve his game uh, so that he would look good when ambassadors visited from overseas. Um, but I think it was an enormously impressive uh, legacy that Henry VII left, really. He inherited a deeply divided kingdom and, and left it in pretty good shape, actually. And left some money in the coffers for a change. Yeah, and, and really that's such a key element of any successful monarch. If you leave the, the crown in good financial order, then that is a huge advantage to your successor. Of course, Henry VIII then went and spent it all and was very frivolous um, and had to dissolve the monasteries to, to fill the coffers back up. But but <laughs> Henry VII really gave him a strong advantage in, in making the crown financially secure again. So it's perhaps unfair to say that Henry VII was, I mean, not exactly inconsequential, but nowhere near as interesting as Henry VIII. Yes. Mainly because Henry just didn't behave like a complete arse. <laughs> I could have, I could have shortened my chapter on Henry <laughs> by just saying that, and it just nails it absolutely. Um, yeah, he didn't. He was a cautious man. He preferred diplomacy to war. He focused a lot on filling the the royal coffers to to kind of stabilise the crown's precarious financial position. And of mm. course, famously, he saw off pretenders to the throne yes. and. There were two in particular, Lambert, Simnel and Perkin Warbeck. They both really got an awful lot of support. But Henry VII um, was very well informed. He had an excellent spy network and mm. just about enough support to see off uh, these pretenders. But nobody would have backed Henry VII uh, really when he came to the throne. Nobody would have thought that he would have lasted. Even at the Battle of Bosworth, yeah, Richard had the superior force yeah. and people thought he'll soon get rid of this this kind of Lancastrian pretender. And without him, no Tudors, no Queen Elizabeth I. Yes, exactly. If we had no Henry VIII. If we had no Henry VIII. And six wives. Yeah, life would be so much more dull, wouldn't it? And we would all be poorer for it. Uh, thank you so much, Tracy, for talking us through all of that. I'll be dealing with King Henry VII in more detail in the next episode, but it was really very useful for all of us to get a handle on, on who the Tudors were and where they came from. And I hope we haven't offended any Welsh people, either for my Welsh pronunciations or for perhaps skipping over a lot of their history. But as you say, Tracy, it's only really when Henry wins the Battle of Bosworth that suddenly people are like, oh my God, the Tudors could be a thing. Who'd have thought? Absolutely, the underdogs. They, they triumph and they go on to be the most talked about dynasty in history. For good reason, I would say, Charlie. So my guest today has been the wonderful Tracy Borman, a proper historian who knows so much more about all this stuff than I do. And I would urge you to get hold of her book, Crown and Scepter, if you want to find out more about the history of the monarchy. And of course, any of her books on the Tudors, if you want to go into them in more depth. And as I say, in the next episode, we'll get stuck into Henry VII, which is full of fantastic stories and events like those surrounding the two pretenders, Lambert Simnel and Perkin Warbeck, two young men who pretended to be members of the royal family with a greater claim on the throne than Henry. And Tracy, I hope I can entice you back to talk about one of our other Tudor monarchs in more detail. Well, I will come back and talk about Eddie Tudor. I am always happy to talk about those Tudors. So be sure to listen to Henry VII, who is out this Friday. Willy Willy Harry Stee, the podcast, is the copyright of Charlie Hickson, 2023.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.